0: anything but not everything. Every decision that you make is a trade-off against something else. And that's true not just for how you spend your money, but also how you spend your time, your focus, your energy, how you spend your attention. It's really about how you spend anything in your life that is a scarce or limited resource. And so the questions become twofold. Number one, what matters most to you? And number two, how do you align your daily decisions to reflect that? Answering these two questions is a lifetime practice, and that is what this podcast is here to explore. My name is Paula Pant. I'm the host of the Afford Anything podcast, and today we have New York Times writer Paulette Perhatch on the show with us. Now, there are several things about Paulette that are fascinating. First of all, let's get her resume out of the way. She's been published in the New York Times, Slate, Elle, Marie Claire, Cosmo, so she's a very well-known, acclaimed journalist she catapulted to fame as a bit of an accidental personal finance writer after she wrote this article called The Story of an F-Off Fund. And the article that she wrote tells the same narrative twice. In scenario A, the protagonist of the story doesn't have an emergency fund. And in scenario B, the protagonist of the story does. And so she tells exactly the same story, but on these two separate tracks. And in doing so, she demonstrated the power of an emergency fund, or as she calls it, an F-off fund. And that story that she wrote went viral. It was read more than a million times. It was translated into multiple languages. And it really brought her into the personal finance fold. But that isn't why I brought her on the show today. We do talk about that at the very end of the interview. But the reason that I brought her on the show is because Our stories are quite similar. Paulette is a lot like me in that she and I both wanted to travel and wanted to write. And so we just started doing it and figured out the money part as we went along with varying results. People talk about FIRE, financial independence, as a fully funded lifestyle change. But Paulette made the lifestyle change. Or more accurately, she never went into a cubicle lifestyle in the first place. She has, for her entire life, forced her work and her career to fit around her life rather than vice versa. And so we're going to talk to her about exactly how she's done that right now. Here's Paulette Perhatch. Hey, Paulette. Hello. I wanted to talk to you because your story is very similar to mine in that both of us, if you think of FIRE, Financial Independence Retire Early, as a fully funded lifestyle change. Both of us made the lifestyle change first. And then after deciding to live this unconventional life, on the other side of that, we were scratching our heads going, huh, wonder how I'm going to fund this. Mm-hmm. I'm coining a term for that. I'm going to call it water. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> water is it, it might dry up any moment. Oh, uh, water is and you. Go with
1: the flow. <laughs> okay, <yeah. laughs> but, you know, both of those are accurate. <laughs> or it might just turn to ice. Yeah, definitely. If I had a lot of cushion behind the lifestyle, would be nice. But yeah, I I pretty much jumped off the cliff and then
0: assumed the water would, would catch me on the way down. <laughs> <laughs> jumped off the cliff and tried not to drown. <laughs> definitely. Yeah. So tell us about your life, because our origin stories are very similar Take us to 18-year-old Paulette.
1: 18-year-old Paulette was reforming after my dad died when I was 17 in an accident at work one day, which is really a formative experience for me. Just coming home one day and seeing like, oh, there's your shoes, there's your watch, there's your clothes, and you are just gone one day. To me, after that, sitting in an office for 35 years at a job I didn't really like was not a thing I was going to do. I was like, oh, I'm going to go into journalism. So I got my degree in magazine journalism really as a way to have all those experiences that money could usually buy because I had a pretty crazy childhood with money. My family went bankrupt when I was eight and then we kind of tumbled from there and then we were kind of just starting to get back on our feet when my dad died. So really flopped out into adult life, just flailing um, my first big travel experience was when my sister was stationed in the Marine Corps in Hawaii and invited me out for the summer. So I went out for the summer and had my 19th birthday out there. And that was my first like, whoa, this is wild and I love it kind of experience. Then I graduated. I interned at
0: some magazines. Let me, let me pause you before we get to the graduation. Let's stay on childhood for a while. Cause okay. there's a lot going on Oof, there. Yeah. There's a lot going on there. Let's go back to eight-year-old Paulette. Then, oh, God. So that we can take this in chronological order. Okay. Your family declared bankruptcy. What do you remember from that experience? I remember that when the phone rang, both my parents said, don't answer it. Wow.
1: I remember one day I was home alone and the phone rang and I picked it up mm-hmm. and this guy asked for my dad and then I could, now I know it was a bill collector and he said to me, um, you know, that I've been trying to get in touch with him and he said to me, your parents are in trouble. <gasps> So I really stopped spending a lot of time at home. I had my two best friends and I would just try to spend as much time over their house as I could. It was really scary. I knew my parents were in trouble and they didn't have the power to protect us from whatever was going to happen. So then we lost our house. It was just a really scary time. It wasn't about the material possessions. It was about seeing your parents really sad and not knowing what to do. That's a really scary feeling as a child. And I'm still trying to pick out how that relates to how I deal with money today. I think it really affected me more deeply than I realized at the time.
0: Wow. Did your parents talk to you directly about money? Did they ever sit you down and say, something's going on? Or did you catch contextual clues? I mostly caught clues.
1: That was the thing, you know, my mom sometimes says, I feel like I, I talked to you too much about it, but we didn't really get, there was just like the no, the constant, like, no, we can't get that. No, we can't get that. And I have this memory, you know, I loved books. And I have this memory of going to Barnes & Noble and asking my mom for a book. And she gave it to me. She said yes. And then I I wanted to show her I was smart. So I read it as fast as possible in the car and said, done. I'm, I'm done reading it. And she remembers that story that she's like, I c- you can't say no every time. So, yes, I got you this book. And you finished reading it before we even got home. It's just like, oh, you know, just seeing it from those perspectives.
0: So to her, it, she felt... Disappointed because now she would have to spend more money on another book.
1: Yeah, that, that was a purchase that didn't last or bring me, like, lasting joy. Wow. And I also watched a lot of TV, so it was the time of coming into later, like, Beverly Hills Now to a No and Saved by the Bell and a lot of, like, Lisa on Saved by the Bells, going shopping. Like, you think <laughs> that going sh- – I grew up thinking that going shopping was an expression of girlhood, and that was cut off which is not a tragic story in the scope of the world. I think the craziest thing about it was just the the sadness of my parents, but also the frustrations of like a pretty stereotypical young girl who wanted nice things and to have pretty dresses and things like that. So, a lot of a lot of levels. Where did you live? Where did you and your
0: family live at the time? So we
1: lived in this neighborhood in Florida, and we had— What part of Florida? It was near Tampa. hmm It was in Tarpon Springs, the sponge capital of the world. Oh. That's right. Um,
0: Sp- sponge is like the thing in the ocean or The thing is in the like- ocean.
1: It also has uh, one of the highest concentrations of Greek Americans in the United States, so really good Greek food. Mm-hmm. So we had a house, which to me, like, I went back and visited it. And it's not a big house. It's like a little house, but it had a pool and it was on the water. Uh. So we were doing well. You know, we had a big van. And a lot of my favorite childhood memories are of buying things. We had a boat. We had a wave runner. Mm -hmm. My dad had a Cadillac. You know, my dad was a businessman. And we were doing well until we were not. Mm. So it was very comfortable until it was very uncomfortable. What
0: triggered the decline
1: my Dad losing employment or having a disagreement with his uh employer, and you know it's one of those like never got quite the details, so your dad lost his job, yeah, pretty mm-hmm. much, and um, he had like a fight with another guy at the company and kind of said it was him or me, and my mom always says, what my dad didn't know at the time was that that guy like slept on the floor of the office while the owner was building the company, so he would never have fired him, so when he said him or me, it was like, well, it's gotta be you, so they didn't have. As much in savings as they should have. And we didn't have like Dave Ramsey, and we didn't have, you know, you didn't even have the internet back then. But you know, it was funny. I remember seeing Tony Robbins' personal power tapes mm. in their car when everything was going down and really thinking, like, that must be total crap. And reading like the cover and being like, no, this is total crap because we have these tapes, but it, everything's still sinking. Mm-hmm. So this must be worthless. And I was, so I was very against self-help for a long time.
0: Did you know when your parents declared bankruptcy? I mean, what you've described so far is that you got a sense that something was going wrong. You noticed that bill collectors were calling. Did you know when they began filing the paperwork? No, not at all.
1: I have this memory of hearing my dad on the phone at one point just saying please to someone. Mm-hmm. And just the tone in his voice stopped me short. I remember one time there this wasn't food in the house. And I knew better than to ask. You know, but there wasn't food in a house on the water with a pool. <sighs> yeah. You know, and so that kind of turned me against nice things for a long time. Yeah. We're really scooping out the depths of uh wow. everything I'm trying to figure out now of just like, okay, what did all this do? Mm. Yeah, we just, it just felt pretty terrible for quite a while and and felt like a secret, you know, and we weren't told like not to tell, but my life at home and how things were felt like a secret.
0: Hmm. You mentioned that your family ultimately lost the house. How did your parents talk to you about that? Did they, did they say we're moving out or did they tell you that they lost it to foreclosure?
1: I don't remember the conversation, but I do remember thinking, knowing we were going to lose the house before we did. Mm. Knowing we couldn't afford the house anymore. Everything in the house had changed. It almost felt like a different place. And we were, you know, my dad was the funniest person ever. Like, everyone called him Big Pete. His funeral, you know, his best friend said to me, like, this is the biggest funeral I've ever seen. Like, the most people. Like, he was a beloved character. So we were very, like happy family. But aside from all this stuff going on, you know, where there was a lot of joking, a lot of laughing. But this time, I just remember like the silence, the silence of the house, the silence among all of us, you know. I don't remember a big conversation. It didn't come as a surprise. And then I really hated the house we moved into after that.
0: Did you have to transfer schools or could you stay in the same school district? No, I we actually moved into the
1: same neighborhood, but like a much worse house in the same neighborhood. So I know that my parents tried to keep things as stable for us as they could, you know.
0: Do you have any brothers or sisters?
1: Yeah, I have uh, one brother and one sister. So I was the youngest and then we were um, two years older, then two years older again. So they were a little bit older. When I was going through middle school, things were really, really tough. And, you know, I wore my brother's clothes. I remember just like... Because the thing was, it kind of tumbled us down the hierarchy of needs because when you are just trying to keep food on the table. You can't really worry about, like, keeping the house clean, doing laundry. You know, everything was—it just became, like, this chaos that we couldn't catch up from. And my mom's an amazing support and really allows me to talk about this so that other people can learn from it and relate to it, know they're not alone going through it. And I wrote about this in an article for Elle about how one time she— Was working her summer job. She was a teacher, which also makes me like crazy about how like teacher salaries are so low because that was part of the problem. And she was working her summer job and she wanted to get a hamburger at McDonald's for lunch, which was 40 cents. She did not have the 40 cents. She had already scooped out her car so many times for change, did not have 40 cents.
0: Hmm.
1: So it was just that that level
0: of broke. Had your parents canceled their credit cards? And
1: I think everything had been maxed out. Overdue, you know. And then at that point, my mom really started to wise up. And I remember her bringing me over offers for new credit cards because then they prey on you once they know you're desperate. And she said, Hey, look at this. Okay, look down here. If it it says if you can't make a payment, it will go up to like 30% interest or whatever it was. She really started looking at the fine print and getting smarter about money.
0: She learned through necessity.
1: Yeah. So, and, you know, she's like, it was the rise of. In the 80s, the rise of credit cards and the commercials, you can have anything you want. And of course, hindsight's twenty twenty. but my dad could always get another job because I think he was so so funny and so lovable and so smart,
0: but then he just couldn't do it. Wow. So what happened in the decade that followed? Your parents declared bankruptcy when you were eight, and nine years later, your dad passed away. Tell me about the, that decade. It sucked. there was a lot of asking
1: for things my mom and I would go to the mall to like window shop quote window shop and now knowing what I know now about like neuromarketing and how everything is designed to make you want things obviously we would always get in a fight because I always wanted more I spent like I said a lot of time over my best friend's house because their family seemed like they you know had it together and uh just became like an adopted little side side child of their family. <laughs> and they're still my best friends. And it's so funny. Their mom actually packed my lunch in high school. And my mom paid her to do like, cause she, I would just spend the night so often that like she'd be like, Paula, do you need a lunch? And like, I don't know, they worked it out to where Jerry packed my lunch in high school. It was so funny. I did get to do things like I went on a youth group ski trip in ninth grade, and I really wanted to go, you know, and I asked my mom, cause I was writing a, a book proposal for a financial memoir. In the ninth grade? No, 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 like recently. Oh, okay.
0: <laughs> <In 2016.
1: laughs> I asked my mom, do you remember how much that trip was? And she goes, $160. She knew 16, 20 years later how much that trip was because they didn't want to say no. But I remember like, I went to Burlington coat factory and I wanted this like really cute ski jacket and I couldn't get it because I couldn't afford it. And then my friend went and got the same one. And I was like, Oh God. And I wore some like someone's uncle's clothes that were all too big and ugly. And of course, then you say like, okay, well, there, this is like my problem all the time. I'm always trying to rehear my own story or geolocate in a way my own story globally, right? Mm -hmm. To see my own life globally, but I'm not like a global animal. I'm an animal that's used to comparing, like we evolved to compare ourselves to the people around us, right? Like our reference groups. Mm -hmm. So to me, it caused me emotional pain that I was like the floppy wearing a someone's uncle's double XL jacket. You know, I wanted to be the cute girl in the cute silver ski coat and I wasn't. So it's like, well, get over it. No one cares. But also it's like, well, that's how it felt at the time. So mm-hmm. always going back and forth with that, with mm-hmm. those kind of stories and wondering how valid they are of being told even. But that's the way it felt at the time.
0: Well, it's, it's your emotional truth. Yeah, Absolutely. it was my
1: emotional truth at the time as like a 14-year-old girl who wanted to be cute or whatever. And, you know, everyone wants to be the like well-dressed. It was always trying to catch up with people around me and being – pouty that I couldn't and blaming my parents. I started working at an ice cream store when I was 14. And I remember my first paycheck and I got myself a little boombox mm-hmm. and that was like such a great feeling. Made minimum wage, like 4.25 an hour, I think. And then I worked at a skating rink and whenever I don't like my work now, I think about cleaning bathrooms at that skating rink <laughs> to the sound of Spice Girls mm. and in sync from which I have some kind of PTSD. (laughs) And then all the kids would leave and it would be silent for like one second. And now being a writer and knowing how much I thrive in silence alone, and no, I recognize like how hard this environment was for me. All the kids would leave. They would turn off the music for like one second. And then my boss loved Shania Twain. So then it was like, and then I would have to like clean whatever disaster mess some child left some poor sick child if i went to open a stall and it was locked i was like oh god here we go <laughs> i had to crawl under the stall on like the moist floor with like roller skate lines through the dirt and then discover whatever horrifying nightmare this child would rather lock the door and leave the stall than open and show to the world
0: and then clean that up wow so that was fun Aye. Any time that I'm stressed out about work, I think back to my first job, which was the drive-thru of McDonald's. Oh, really? Ugh. And I'm like, you know what? Anything is better than that. Oh, God. <laughs> Anything I've ever done is better than that.
1: Yeah. it's. It, I'm really glad I had that experience, yeah. though, because... Yeah, it makes every
0: job from that point <laughs> forward better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Then we started to kind of make our own money. Uh, that was nice. That was really good. It, it gave me a sense of control over my own spending money. The other thing was I could always get money out of my dad because I was such a daddy's girl. And my poor dad would, like, give me money, and then my mom would get mad at him for giving me money. It was rough. Mm -hmm. I knew how to work the system. (laughs) (laughs) And my dad would always let me keep the change. Money was, oh, like, now it's like, ding, ding, ding. Like, money as love. Oh, God. Mm -hmm. Another topic for my therapist. Did you have a car when you were 16? I didn't get a car when I was 16. We got I got a car when I was 17. I got a 1989 Mazda 626. We rolled nickels to get that car. My parents said if you can find half the money, we will find the other half. I think it was 12 somewhere in like the $1200 to $1500 range. So I had to save up $750.
0: So you had to save up $750? Yeah, and then I couldn't afford it.
1: I couldn't afford to insure it or register it for like three. It was, I think it took me three months to be able to afford to register my car. Mm. Or maybe I got, no, I think you had to get registered to get insurance. I think I drove uninsured for six months <laughs> as a 17-year-old, which is a great idea. <laughs> wow. And I didn't know how to drive a stick, and we just like got me a stick shift. That was like the worst month of my life. Mm-hmm. I remember we went through the McDonald's drive through and my dad was in the car. <laughs> It took me, like, five minutes to get from the first window to the second window. I kept stalling, and the women at the second window just leaned out and were, like, they were, like, pep-talking me. They were, like, you got it. Just let it out easy. You can do it. (laughs) So, yeah, now the phrase prepare for success (laughs) is, like, yeah. In my life, and I know that's a thing, and that wasn't a lot of how we rolled uh, yeah, <laughs> when
0: I was young. That's so funny. So I also learned how to drive a stick shift out of necessity after buying a cheap car. And it was when I bought my $400 car. Mm. So I spotted a flyer for this car. This car was $450. I went to the seller, and I was like, I'll give you $400 for it. And he was like, no. It was originally priced at $500, so $450 is already a deal. And I was like, "Sorry, man, I'm giving you 400 for it." And we went back and forth and back and forth, and eventually I got it for 400. Actually, it might have been 420. I think I had to compromise somewhere in between 400 and 450. But then it turned out to be a stick shift. It was a four-speed. It was a four-speed manual. Um, and I didn't know how to drive a stick. And so I just tried to figure it out and stalled all over the streets of, of Oh my god Boulder, Colorado. And then eventually the way that I learned, because I kept trying to get friends to teach me and nobody had the patience. But then eventually, one of my roommates got a DUI mm. and so her license got taken away. And so she <laughs> wanted me to drive her around everywhere. And she knew how to drive a stick, so I was like, all right, Jessica, if you can teach me how to drive a stick, I will drive you around to wherever you want to go. And so that incentivized her to actually have the patience to teach me. Oh, man. My poor friends at that time, my
1: God. Yeah. It took me like four cycles to get through a left turn one time, and my friends played in a band, and they were much older, and outside the club where they were playing, like, I was – leaving and everyone started leaving the club and I didn't want to have to stop because I didn't I knew I would stall out and I didn't want to seem like a loser so I like tried to just like tap the horn but I was like honk like I was (laughs) honking like a total jerk and then I had to stop anyway and then I stalled and then I restarted and then there was a stop sign like right there and then I peeled out on accident. (laughs) (laughs) oh man yeah but you know what all these humbling humbling experiences are so important (laughs) oh yeah so um another thing I did was I like signed up to go to Finland for the summer you could get a scholarship to go to Finland Mm -hmm. and otherwise it was like $12,000 and I almost made it Mm. and then I didn't and I was 13 and I just remember being so bummed that I couldn't just pay to go I had to like convince someone and charm someone Mm. I think that's kind of an interesting theme of life is like charm as a, as a replacement for money, like a value. Like I remember being over my best friend's house and it's like, as long as I can be like clown best friend that everyone wants to have around, I'll be allowed to stay for dinner and things like that.
0: Mm, So you would have food. Well,
1: yeah. I mean, I didn't ever feel like I would go hungry. Like I remember when there wasn't really food in the cabinets, I put like barbecue sauce on bread. Right. Mm -hmm. So it was like we had bread and barbecue sauce. They had better food. They had Sunny D. Mm. It, It was amazing. Mm. And bagels. Mm. I joke with Jerry. I'm like, I just if I ever make, Jerry? Jerry is uh, my best friend's mom. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, if I ever really make it, I'm just gonna like send her a check for ten thousand dollars and just write like you know why in yeah. the memo, and mm. she'll be like, mm-hmm. like grocery bill nineteen ninety six to two thousand four. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um. Yeah.
0: All right. So then take us to when you were seventeen.
1: Uh. So yeah, I, uh I was in class. And they called me out of class, and my dad had gotten a job as a construction site supervisor. And he, you know, was really just nice. He just really seemed to come alive again. You know, I mean, it's got to feel terrible to not work for so long. He would try to start businesses, and he had had this deal where it was like they were going to recycle tires to cover the playgrounds, the playground floors, that was like a business they were starting. I just remember him saying, like, when this deal comes through, when this deal comes through, like, we'll get money. And I just remember thinking, like, give me a steady job at a corporate company. Like, to me, when I was little, that sounded like the best thing ever. Mm -hmm. So then he finally got this job. And you could just tell, like, there was, like, that sense of pride again or that sense of, I don't know, he just seemed happier. Mm -hmm. And then my mom called, you know, they called me out of class and my mom and Jerry were there, clearly, clearly had been crying, and uh, my mom said, Daddy's been in an accident, and I just, like, pictured him, like, in a wheelchair, you know, and then she just said, Daddy didn't make it. And I, apparently I just, like, screamed. My entire class ran out of the classroom. Yeah, then I went home, and it was, you know, the weird thing about it is there was this underlying thing that I later recognized as full presence, Because, like, you're in shock, right? So I graduated high school two months later. Then I drove off to college by myself. No one was at the house when I left. Mm. I've actually had the experience. In the last week, I've been lost on a college campus twice. And just realizing, like, how much anxiety a college campus gives me. Because it's just a memory of that time. And it was so hard. And I forgot my book of CDs, and the only CD in my little boom box was Radiohead's The Bends. <laughs> so for about four months until I went home again, it was just me and Radiohead and my grief over my dad dying, which didn't really hit until about three months after he died. Mm-hmm. And then it was like, oh, my God. It just really, like, obliterated my soul. Mm-hmm. There's no way to talk about it in a way that doesn't sound too dramatic, It just took me down to, like, nothing. I really um, became very exhausted and also really selfish during that time. Pretty, and my best friends, my poor best friends. I mean, like, you know, they're trying to have their first year at college, too. So I became, like, really bitter, pretty selfish, and eventually just felt too tired, and I just became, like, fairly suicidal. Mm. I was just tired, you know, just so tired. And I just thought that was the way life was going to be. It was funny because it has a money theme. I actually remember like I had a few thousand in my bank account for my student loans. And just thinking about like what I would do with that money. I would do some big thing with it or go somewhere and end my life. This is your freshman year? Yeah, but I couldn't do that to my mom. So there wasn't any life insurance. And thank God we were all like as old as we were. You think about people who, if we had been, you know, 8, 10, and 12, it's like no one swoops in. You think someone's going to swoop in, no one swoops in. It's just the way it is. Uh, my mom was able to do things like pay for my cell phone bill during college. So she helped me out. And of course, there was like the here and there, mom, can I have 200 bucks? You know, things like that. Whoever designed the system of, like, sending 17-year-olds a few thousand dollars at once for Mm -hmm. student loans to last them four months, Mm -hmm. I don't think was really thinking things through. So, of course, oh, my God, college was a shit show. There was one night that I pretty much consider, like, it was the hardest day, and I just just called my best friend. You know, I just knew I had to call someone, and after you've been, like— such a burden for so long. It's so hard to like call again and be like, "Hey, again, I need you to like come over." Um, but she talked me through it and she was like, "I love you more than you know." And just the way she phrased that and was like, "more than you know," it just reminded me of like everything I don't know and like being open. So I remember about 10 months after my dad died just being like, "Okay." I'm ready to, like, live again. (laughs) And um, then my sister, who lived on a marine base, invited me to uh, live with her for the summer in Hawaii. That was a good place to figure out how to live again. And she lived, uh, like, 100 yards from a beach in Hawaii on the marine base in Kaneohe. I spent $740, which was like the biggest check I'd ever written, to go out to Hawaii and just wrote. I didn't have any money, but I didn't do anything. <laughs> I just walked to the beach every day. And because the beach was on a marine base, I uh, had this huge, beautiful beach to myself most of the days. It was crazy. Uh, and I made a friend and rode around in his old VW bug, and I made jewelry. I considered that as my profession for a little bit. I was really into making jewelry in college. Sold a little bit of my jewelry. And I remember one of my sister's friends sent me like a little congratulations card for getting my first jewelry in a store, which was really cool of her to do. And just thought about like, okay, let's live in this world where like everything that matters can be taken away at any second. Mm. And um, I hadn't. Realized it at the time, but I have a generalized anxiety disorder, Mm -hmm. so that got really mixed in with the grief over my father's death, so I didn't recognize that at the time, and now I do. So just living with that and trying to write my way out of that or figure, figure out how to feel good consistently was important to me. We did just cheap stuff. We didn't do much. When I got home, a... A virus went through my friend group called Buying a Puppy, (laughs) and uh, I was swept up in the mania and got a puppy, like an idiot, because if I can't take care of myself, why not get another animal I can't take care of as well? (laughs) So we all had dogs, and then that kind of um, negated me from doing things like studying abroad, like I wanted to. Not that I had the money. I mean, that was the thing. It was like, I always wanted the semester at sea, the study abroad... I have this neurotic thing about life where I want to check all these boxes off, right? Like I want or needed that very specific life experience. I needed to go to prom. I needed to get a yearbook. I needed to get a this. I needed to get a car at 16. Like I wanted that very, I don't know, what is that? It tells you that like you're really living or that your life is valid or something. Like I needed that, right? So I was really disappointed that I didn't get that. But I had a great group of friends and a lot of artists, I got my degree in magazine journalism, had a lot of anxiety. Like, college was pretty hard for me. I drank too much because of something, you know, now that I recognize, like, I had anxiety. I have, like, social anxiety sometimes. I'm very much like an ambivert. So by not dealing with all that in the way that I should have, I drank too much. I spent too much money. I never lived within my means kind of stuff where, like, I had to get my friend to drive me to sell plasma one time. I bought a really cheap car before Hawaii, and then it turned out to be a lemon, and it was just on the side of the house the whole time I was in Hawaii under tarp. And then when I got back, the tarp had melted onto the car, and then, like, I had to sell it for $100. Just that kind of stuff. So bad. Um, We worked in a leasing office during college, leasing terrible apartments. (laughs)
0: Oh, all this that's, like, funny now. We'll come back to this episode after this word from our sponsors. Hey, do you remember 1989? (laughs) Yeah, no, neither do I. That was a long time ago. And back then, businesses didn't rely on software as much as they do today. Today, modern businesses... Everything runs on software. It doesn't matter if you have a pet store or a yoga studio or or an online business. No matter what type of business you're running, you need software. So Capterra is the leading free online resource that can help you find the best software solution for your business. They have more than 700,000 reviews of products from real software users. So that you can discover everything that you need in order to make a more informed decision. And you can search more than 700 specific categories of software. Everything from project management software, to email marketing software, to yoga studio management. No matter what type of software you're looking for, Captera makes it easy to discover the right solution, fast, fast. Visit capterra.com slash paula for free today to find the right tools to make 2019 the year for your business. Captera, capterra.com slash paula. Capterra, that's C-A-P-T-E-R-R-A dot com slash paula, P-A-U-L-A. capterra.com slash paula. So you know what's a little bit ironic about running your own business is that you are hustling so hard to get clients and get work and not just find the clients, but then actually do the work and keep up with the demand. You're working so hard that ironically, sometimes it's hard to find the time to send invoices, right? Check out FreshBooks. FreshBooks makes invoicing and accounting easy, especially for small business owners. You can create and send professional-looking invoices in 30 seconds, and you can get them paid two times faster with automated online payments. And if a client doesn't pay, FreshBooks will send an automatic late payment reminder so that you don't have to send a really awkward email. The system automatically does it for you. You can also file your expenses even quicker and keep everything perfectly organized for tax time. And FreshBooks grows alongside your business, so you have the tools when you need them without needing to learn the ins and outs of accounting. Join the 24 million people who have used FreshBooks by giving it a try for free for 30 days. No catch and no credit card required. Just go to FreshBooks.com Paula. And when they ask, how did you hear about us? Type in afford anything. That's FreshBooks, F-R-E-S-H, books.com Paula, P-A-U-L-A. When they ask, how did you hear about us? Mention afford anything.
1: What happens next? I interned at Health and Coastal Living Magazine in Birmingham, Alabama, which was like real, like old magazine money buildings, which was really cool. Gorgeous buildings. And then at Coastal Living, you know, just editing, tagging photos. I had to share this cubicle with this other guy. It was like when tagging photos first became a thing. We just had to go through so many photos, tag if there was a fireplace, if there was whatever, and write a caption. And I mean, we went... If you have to caption, like, a thousand pictures of living rooms, you start to go insane. (laughs) (laughs) And then I got a job at a small paper in St. Augustine, Florida, making nothing, which, Mm. you know, you know how that goes. And having just the time of my life, it was super, super rinky-dink, super fun. And then I got $50,000 from the lawsuit of my dad's death. Mm. And... I bought a house in
0: Florida. In you bought two, you bought a house in two thousand five. What? Yeah. I didn't. I've known you for years, and I didn't know that about you. Yeah. Do you want me wow. to cry again about it?
1: <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I. There's an essay.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, just as context, I've known Paulette for a long time, mm-hmm. and I've known most of this story. I did not know about the house in Florida. Yeah.
1: I think because it's. You know how it ends. Yeah. Oh, my God. Nightmare. But, I mean, there were so many things about it that were red flags. But it was really like Seattle. It's so crazy because Seattle right now is like a land grab. Everyone's buying. It's like, oh, it's going to go up so much. That's how Florida was. Actually, where I lived in Florida was the fastest growing county in the nation. Mm. So I got this house I bought with a builder who was so clearly a shyster. And I was just like so young. I was 23. And uh didn't know what I was doing.
0: Tell us the details, so did you put all fifty thousand towards this house? How much did it cost? Where in Florida was it?
1: So the house was a little inland, right? So the best place to live was out toward the water toward the beach, obviously, and this was like a little far inland, right? so it was a three bedroom house. I believe it was one forty seven and I did not put all fifty thousand toward the house, of course, being me I I put $10,000 I think I put 20000 of the 50000 into the house. I bought a $10,000 car, and so that leaves about twenty. dollars And I paid off a bunch of credit cards. I did not pay off my student loans, which I – if I had – later, I became a Dave Ramsey follower when I was paying off my student loans later in life. But if I had had – I didn't have any framework for, like, what to do with this kind of money. The crazy thing was I was living in a house with this girl and my dog – her pit bull and another dog. And her pit bull was kind of dangerous. And so she kept it sectioned off from with a baby gate. So I'm getting this house built. And this guy is like such I mean, I'll send you his mugshot. <laughs> and you will say, How in the world did you let buy a house from this guy? You know, I mean, I was 23. Such an idiot. And There was a gravel road. He told me that would be paved. It was a dirt road. To this day, not paved. Should have gotten that in writing. You know, so many things I should have done. So he's taking way too long to build the house. I'm feeling like this dog is more dangerous and more dangerous. And I really want to get out of the house. And I'm supposed to be out of the house in October. And I totally recognize it's going to take him longer to build the house. And he's like, oh, yeah, sure, hon. You know, these things take longer. This is how things go. Whatever. Blah, blah, blah. Then I have to tell my roommate I need to stay longer. November, I'm in my house. I am doing crafts, listening to lady folk rock, and decide to get a glass of water. Walk out into the living room. The pitbull sees me from the kitchen and just starts hauling out toward me. And so, you know, just in case the baby gate fails, I jump up on the couch. Well, let me tell you baby gates do not hold back pitbulls. Also, dogs can jump on couches. Wow. So the dog jumps up, <laughs> oh. grabs my arm with its teeth up here. here, oh. is like using me like a chew toy. Its owner finally gets it off me, and then I run toward my room, and then I hear dog nails on the floor. So recognizing I would not make it to my room, I turn and try to kick the dog off me. doesn't happen. Ends up grabbing me by the thigh, gets me on the ground. She gets it off me again, finally. And uh, my arm was just puncture wounds, but my leg looked like a mini shark attack, like a lot of innards. So then I have to move in with my other friend. So through these stories, you will hear a lot of themes of other people taking care of me, not watching out enough for myself, not protecting myself enough financially or otherwise. So in this essay that I ended up writing about it, I compare getting attacked by the pitbull to what went down with my house of like warning sign after warning sign that things were going to go terribly and then they do. So, oh my God, the house was such a nightmare. Like when I, and I haven't talked to you about this, but when I hear have renters, Mm -hmm. I think about the roommate I had who... Left disgusting things like entire chickens out on the counter, you know, picked over till the morning. She like let her boyfriend just kind of moved in, move in. They took out the couch bed in the living room and just like lived in the living room. She got a puppy and then he had some like pyramid scheme with porn that he kept trying to get me into. I was like, no, thank you. And then my next roommate was there for two weeks and I, he said he was sick and then his sister was like, um, he's going to be taken out to the hospital due to alcohol poisoning and I was like, uh, okay. So then I had all these EMTs in my house moving my furniture, taking him out on a stretcher. I go into his room. There's a bottle of vodka, an empty bottle of vodka for every day he'd been there. Cigarette burns in the carpet and then I'm going to say something graphic. Yeah. Are you ready? Yeah. His alcohol-induced diarrhea sh- dried all over the bathroom under the bathroom rug Paula under Mm. and so I had to clean that up I would set a timer for five minutes have flashbacks to when I worked at the skating rink and I was just cleaning it up and I was just like stocks next time stocks
0: no one has to clean off stocks Mm. why didn't you hire a cleaning person oh I didn't have money for a cleaning person so here's where just where I'm going to give the disclaimer. This is not how you buy a rental property. You, you bake in a budget for hiring a team. And one, you're running the numbers to see if the property works. So, yeah. Yeah. See, I, I don't do
1: financial advice. I do financial, like, warning.
0: Yeah. The, 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 <laughs> the thing is, oftentimes if somebody hasn't properly analyzed a rental property, they'll have a bad experience with it because – that particular property is not a good rental, and then that experience scares them away from buying a rental property. But the problem isn't rental properties generally. The problem is they did not run a proper analysis before buying the property. See, I'm going to take your course, and then
1: I'll feel better. <laughs> so, yeah, that was nightmare time. So then, uh, so many crazy stories happen. You know, the whole time my house is just diving in value. Like, I still have. Issues when I look at Zillow, I'm like, oh God, Zillow, because Zillow was where I got the bad news, where it was like, just falling. And then at that t- same time, I was applying to go to Peace Corps because I was like, okay, I want to travel. I ha- still haven't traveled. I'm never going to do it unless I just do it. I- like the only way I could afford to was to do it for work. Mm-hmm. The recession was coming on. It was 2008, I ended up leaving. I was very lucky to get renters who were in my house the entire time I was in Peace Corps, and nothing went wrong. I sold my car for $5,000 before I went to Peace Corps, and that was my buffer money, which I slowly ebbed away during Peace Corps in the ATMs at the Capitol where all you had to do was think in dollars instead of guaranies mm-hmm. in, in Paraguay and, like, just be like, I'm just going to take 20 here, 20 there, and next thing you know, you mm-hmm. know, and visits home and things like
0: that. So then what happened after Peace Corps? Because you've, similar to me, you came back and you decided to be self-employed forever, <laughs> like we 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 both went overseas for two years and then came back to the U.S. and decided that the nine-to-five life was not for us and we both did it without first having any money so that's why I call us water instead of fire because we both did the unfunded lifestyle change
1: well first I came back from Peace Corps like such a shit show I have a an essay about this that I wrote for a salon about, I just was like, I cannot do this anymore. Like, it's not fair to my friends or my family to be this way anymore and just trying to, like, getting to that lowest point. So, like, two days after Peace Corps, I'm in a cubicle the size of a bathroom stall inputting insurance forms Mm -hmm. from handwriting and sobbing Mm -hmm. all the time because, like, I didn't have any time to grieve. I just had to, like, get to work because I didn't have any money.
0: Wait, Wait, grieve...
1: Grieve. I mean, coming back from Peace Corps is much harder than going to Peace Corps, I think. You don't have the support system. I, you know, in one fell swoop, I had, you know, lost my host family who I was super close with, my job. Leaving Peace Corps was kind of a mess for me a little bit. But the best experience I got out of that was this energy, this I'm not staying here energy. So I'm like, okay, you really hate where you are right now. You're in a tiny cubicle being yelled at at work, which is not okay. I do not
0: like being yelled at at work. Quick time out. How did you get a job so quickly after coming back from Peace Corps? How was it that you were working two days after getting back to the U.S.? I was temping.
1: And so in order to get out of taking foreign language classes in college, which was hilarious once I went to Peace Corps and could have used that Spanish, I took computer classes. So I was really good at Excel. I'm like a spreadsheet nerd. So that to get hired as a temp, as a spreadsheet nerd, you can get a job pretty quickly. So I just was like, okay, you really hate where you are right now. What are we going to do? And I decided that I was going to study 10Key. So that I could input the numbers faster. So every day I would do a little five minute lesson on 10 key and just do that because I'm like, I'm going to use this to launch myself forward in the tiniest way because you can't just like sit when you're in a bad situation. That's what I've learned. Move forward. So the temps in general were treated with disrespect at that company. This one woman yelled at us and then moved up to working as an administrative assistant for one of the executives. Stayed there long enough to hear the woman who yelled at us get yelled at for her attitude by the CEO, which I got to say I really enjoyed. <laughs> then uh, moved to Seattle. I was waitressing for a while. At that point, my house started going into my renters. They were supposed to do rent to own for 200000 but now the house was worth seventy five. So they were like, we'll give you 90. So then they stop paying rent. I stop paying my mortgage. I'm getting letters from Bank of America saying, you know, $30,000 behind on my payments, which is real fun, making $300 a week as a waitress really low money. My pit bull attack money came through, which was what? $750. And that's the only way I made it through the summer.
0: <laughs> what? Are you see you got a you got a settlement for $750? Yeah. Well she had already
1: she said she would pay my medical bills. It cost me sixteen hundred dollars. But then she just like disappeared on me. I was like, really dude, come mm-hmm. on. All I want is my medical pills. It's sixteen hundred dollars. So she had already paid me seven fifty, and then I got another seven fifty, and that's what got me through the summer. And I was like, "Girl, you've got to get your life together." I do not like this sentence. Like my pitbull money attack came through. <laughs> I can make it through the summer. I was like, "My God!" So, but still, like, kept that. I'm not staying here. Energy. I. Read a lot of books about negotiating and getting a job. I called a career help person. I literally was like, career help person, what are they called? <laughs> a career coach. Uh-huh. And I said, I have no money. <laughs> Can you like give me one tip? And she said, buy the book, The Overnight Resume. Hmm. And so I bought that book, got an interview at a tech company, um, writing proposals, totally was not qualified to get it, but interviewed well. I remember on the day of the interview, like I didn't. I forgot my wallet. It was just like life was a shit show, but I got the job. I told my partner at the time, I was like, I'm going to negotiate for 5,000 more. And he was like, I don't know. You're really desperate for a job. Like I don't think you should negotiate. But I was like, no, I'm reading all these books about getting a job. Like you, you should negotiate. I negotiated for 5,000 more. I asked for that. And they were like, well, what about commission? So I ended up getting 1% commission. And that was over the next three years, a $100,000 difference. Wow! So I started making good money Mm. and I liked it. I mean, I had made $28,000 as a reporter. I had made $2,000 a year as a Peace Corps volunteer. And then I'd had little jobs here and there. So I had never made more than $30,000 a
0: year. You see why we get along so well. We have such similar stories, (laughs) such similar origin stories.
1: So I was like, okay, girl, this is your chance. I was like, you know, you want to be a writer so I paid, I took writing classes at a writing center in Seattle, which was amazing. I paid off my debt. I paid off all my student loan debt. And I wanted to be debt-free by the time I was 30. And literally the week before my birthday, I made it.
0: Wow. It was crazy.
1: So I set myself up for that life because I was like, you know you want to do that. And I I put a ton into my 401k. I put as much as I could into my 401k because now that I've been freelancing for two years, I gave myself a few years to take a break.
0: So one thing that strikes me when I hear you tell this story is the power of earning more, I think the reason I talk about that so much is because there are so many blogs and podcasts and voices out there that are like, frugality is the answer to everything. And what I hear when I hear your story is that your problem was not a problem of spending too much. Your problem was a problem of earning too little. You were making $28,000 a year at the St. Augustine newspaper, and then you made a stipend as a Peace Corps volunteer, which, of course, nobody goes into Peace Corps for the money. That's what you're supposed to do. You're a full-time volunteer just on a living stipend. But then the, the thing that got you to be debt-free is looking for a job that paid really well and negotiating really well during the hiring process so that you could make—were you making six figures? One year I broke six figures by $600. Nice! Okay, so you were making close to or at six figures, and that was the thing that made the difference. And the thing that I felt at that
1: time was that I earned it. I mm-hmm. killed it at that job, and I I knew that I couldn't afford to not kill it, and it was the first time that I had really high expectations for myself and really – because when you are making $28,000 a year, you're like, well, I'm making $28,000 a year, so you're not getting the best of me. I got to be honest. <laughs> yeah. There was that much money to be made. And I don't think that money is the only, you know, like I really love Daniel Pink's drive, the book drive. It was also a good challenge for me. I got creative. I rewrote all of our proposals. I learned InDesign really well, which began my love of Adobe products. And I I still love to this day graphic design. And that's a part of my creative expression now too. And so that, and that opened up, I started learning on lynda.com and like those people, Linda, call me, you need to start paying me because all I do is talk about lynda.com, which is being rebranded as
0: LinkedIn Learning. And they're a sponsor of this show. Oh, get out of town! All Actually, right. they used to be. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't renew. <laughs>
1: but really, it was in it had been in Peace Corps that I discovered the crazy revolution. Really, I don't know how like how strong of a word to say, but like you can learn from experts anywhere at any time. That in the history of man is a crazy change. So like I just bought a horse in Paraguay. I just kind of snapped after a year. Long story. Um, (laughs) Anyway, bought a horse and then just like Googled like how to ride horse. (laughs) Enter. I went to equestrian school on YouTube. And like then there's someone in America like who seemed very professional with a really nice big horse, you know, teaching me how to ride a horse. And I was like, whoa, I'm in the middle of South America. I can't get soy sauce right now. If I want soy sauce, I can't get it. But if I want to learn how to ride a horse from one of the top experts, here it is. Mm. And I ended up actually starting a corporate university at that tech company and became like full on adult education nerd, which has become a big part of my like what I offer and also what I'm about, because I really didn't take advantage of my education. And I see my own personal education as a pathway to make more money and live my dream at the same time, which I'm trying to do
0: because mm. I'm not wasting time here. I got a life to live. We'll come back to this episode in just a minute. But first... If you run your own business, then you know you're juggling a bunch of stuff. Sometimes some of that stuff that you're juggling, like filing taxes, running payroll, issuing 1099s to your contractors, I mean, it's necessary, but that's not why you got into business. And it's time-consuming, and it's just not that much fun. That's where Gusto comes in. They'll take care of that for you so that you can focus on other parts of your business that you enjoy more and that you're good at and that you can grow. Gusto makes payroll, taxes, and HR easy for solopreneurs and small business owners. They handle fast, simple payroll processing. They handle benefits. They give you expert HR support. They'll automatically pay and file your federal, state, and local taxes so that you don't have to worry about it. And they make it easy to add on health benefits and even 401ks for the people on your team. Those old-school, clunky old payroll providers are not really built for small businesses, modern small businesses, but Gusto is. So let them... Wear one of the many hats that you're wearing, because you've got better things to do. You can get three months free when you run your first payroll. Try a demo and see it for yourself at Gusto.com/paula. That's Gusto, G-U-S-T-O. dot com slash paula. P-A-U-L-A. Gusto.com/paula. Attention entrepreneurs. Do you sell physical products that you need to ship to your customers? If so, then you know that getting your orders out the door quickly and at an affordable price can be hard. So check out ShipStation.com. They're a fast, easy way to manage and ship your orders from one place. Whether you're using your own website or Etsy or Shopify or Squarespace or any of 75 other popular selling channels, what ShipStation does is it brings your orders into a simple interface, making it easy to manage everything from any device, even your cell phone, and then You can create labels for top carriers like UPS, FedEx, the Postal Service. And the thing that I think is super cool about them, the reason that I like them, is because they give you access to the types of discounts that really big companies get. So even if you're a one-person shop, you still get access to the best rates available. That's why I think you should check them out. So right now, try ShipStation free for 30 days and get an additional month free only if you use my promo code, Paula. Don't wait. Go to ShipStation.com. And before you do anything else... Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Paula. That's shipstation.com, S-H-I-P station.com, enter Paula. Shipstation, make ship happen. So then what happens? So you're at this this high-paying job. You're making close to or above Six figures above by $600. <laughs> <laughs> so you were making $100,600. <laughs> then paid off all your debt. You became debt free. What happened to the house? The house in Florida. The house short sold for almost exactly half of what I paid for it.
1: So about 70000 Yeah, 75000 I think it sold for.
0: And then it was just so
1: weird because I think it was like money just became unhinged. At one second, you owed 140000 then you didn't. You're $30,000 behind on those payments, but then you don't owe them. It was this really crazy, mind-boggling thing. I don't know. Didn't it seem like that? Didn't it seem like all of a sudden something really
0: big at one point all of a sudden didn't mean anything? The weird thing about real estate is that $10,000 is a rounding error. Getting into real estate for the first time and getting into a world where I'm someone, as you are, Paulette, also, I'm someone uh, to whom $100 is a big deal. $1,000 is a very big deal. And then you get into the world of real estate, and you can make a $10,000 mistake, and that's just called Tuesday. Or conversely, you could make a really good decision and come out $10,000 ahead, and that's just called Wednesday, right? That's what's so hard to grasp, to internalize in the world of real estate and really in in any type of entrepreneurship or running your own business where all of a sudden the numbers become bigger than you because they are bigger than you because now it's not just you, it's this business that you're running.
1: It's really crazy. And I think there's something about my history from which I have a hard time going big. I keep staying really small. Mm-hmm. Um, Girl, me too. I mean... No, truly.
0: Seriously. <laughs> seriously. Me, too.
1: I kind of want to talk about where I'm at right now a little bit. Do it. After the tech company job, I had an article go viral. When did you quit the tech company job? In 2015. Okay. And, and why did you quit it? Um, It's kind of a long, convoluted story where we, we parted ways. Oh, got it. Okay, <laughs> cool. And then I had a 20-hour-a-week job. I really got into, okay, how am I going to do this? How am I going to? Well, one of the things that I saw at the tech company was people making a lot of money. You know, The sales guys made a ton of money and I was like, what if you could, let's say you make $100 an hour. Can you make $100 an hour and work for 20 hours a week? So I was very interested in taking off the 40 hours a week label. And this is what I think being a Peace Corps volunteer, even though I didn't make a lot of money, I got a ton of value out of Peace Corps. I mean, you're on the other side of the planet. You look up for the stars that you know, and you realize like, oh no, this is the darkness on the other side, underneath. Mm -hmm. We are floating in space. Who the hell decided that we have to work 40 hours a week? (laughs) Yeah, We evolved from single-celled organisms. We don't even know where we are, what we're doing. Why are we like sitting in car? I mean, all the stuff that you guys are probably already thinking, but Peace Corps really rammed it home for me. And coupling Peace Corps with the way that I saw my dad's life end so abruptly, I'm doing my own thing and I'm gonna make it work. So I read the four-hour work week. Then I decided I wanted to get into adult education. I wanted to be a writer who helps writers be writers. That was my thing. And so I started freelancing. And doing um, all kinds of writing. I have written 4,000 words on eye makeup remover. Oh. Thank you very much. I got $2,000 to do that. Wow. You didn't know there were 4,000 words about eye makeup remover, but there are. That's 50 cents a word. That's solid. <laughs> yeah, that was good. So really doing an online course for writers. And then that online course got picked up as my book, Welcome to the Writer's Life. And now I'm doing writing coaching and then getting... In 2016, I had an article go viral, which was really crazy. Uh, You know, after probably 10 years of studying creative writing and learning about narrative, I had an article published that I got paid $40 for. My story, a story of an F-off fund. Mostly about rethinking situations that I had been in in life without any extra money and where people had exerted control over my life. It wasn't exactly my story, but kind of a fictionalized version of things that had happened to me. And then replaying what that story might look like if I had had a few thousand in the bank. Mm. Now that I had a few thousand in the bank, really for the first time after those situations had happened.
0: Wait, so you were going back through earlier life stories and reimagining what they would have been like if you had had a little bit more cash?
1: Yes. And imagining what the that power would have looked like, mm. how the power dynamic would have gone down. So it was so funny. I was actually at my 20-hour-a-week day job in my cubicle, and people started posting the story. People started tweeting about it. And then at, like, 10 a.m., Jezebel wrote a story about my story. I can comfortably say a million people read it. Mm. I saw it in all different languages all around the world. It was mentioned in Elle and in all kinds of magazines. It was crazy. And
0: we will link to it in the show notes. Link in the show notes.
1: (laughs) And so that was a really cool show of the power of art. Mm -hmm. Because how many people have said you need to save money for a rainy day? I don't know. The more that I research art and its history, the more I see how integral it is to the human experience Mm -hmm. and valuable. Mm -hmm. It's helped me value my work. Mm -hmm. So since then, I've gotten stories for The New York Times and Become a more well-known writer and a go-to person as someone who can put power to words, whether it is in persuasive writing for a business, which I'm happy to do. DM me. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Then I do writing for websites and businesses and just pick up things here and there. And I coach writers and I sell my writer's course and it all trickles in, you know? So you've been self-employed
0: since 2015 then?
1: Yes. Well, 2000. There was a break. 2015, I left the tech company. There was a break for a while, and then I worked in 2016, and I think I left. The last time I had, I worked for someone else, was, like, early 2016. Hmm. It's a wild ride. Oh, my God. I was not prepared. I'm still just like, ooh, I run a business. Like you say, like, I'm going to be a freelance writer. No, you're starting a freelance writing business. You have your departments. Like, what's your operations department looking like these days? And I got to tell you, probably for a lot of freelance writers, not great because we don't think about it. Right. What's a, you know, what are operations? Your marketing department, which I hate. I don't want to be all about myself and send a newsletter that says, hey, come to me for writing coaching. But I do because I would like to make a living at it. I'm getting better at that.
0: Okay. So you've been fully self-employed since 2016, doing the thing that you love And one of the things that strikes me about your story, not just now but throughout, is that you have been guided first and foremost by what you want to do. When you graduated from college, you worked for a magazine and then for a newspaper because those were things that you were passionate about. Then you went into the Peace Corps because that was a meaningful experience. And then you were in debt, so you you leveraged the power of earning more and worked for a tech company and made $100,600 per year, (laughs) in your best year, (laughs) and got yourself out of debt, and since 2016, you've been completely on your own, and that's not without its hiccups, it's not without its ups and downs, but your motivation has been to lead with what you want to do and figure out how to make the money work out.
1: And it's working on a lot of levels. I am as happy as I thought I would be
0: if I did this.
1: And it comes from a place of gratitude that we have the opportunity to do this because not a lot of people do. And I think if you do have that opportunity, you should go for it if you can, you know, and and stay financially stable. One of my jobs in the personal finance world, which I have been scooped into because of the F off fun story, is that I'm here to say, oh, my gosh, I'm bad with money, too. My friends want me to say I'm getting better with money. I'm learning to be better with money. Mm -hmm. And even when you mess up again, over the last year, I started my blog, and I was like, I'm going to save my $10,000 again. And so your goal for this year was to save $10,000? Yeah, my goal for this year was to save $10,000, and I went $13,000 in debt this year. I'm like, oh, okay, so interesting.
0: Mm -hmm. Good, interesting move there. (laughs) By the way, when we say this year, we're recording this in 2018. This is not going to air until 2019. Oh.
1: So just to keep saying, okay, well, what do I need to do now? And continuing to be open about money struggles, especially in the face of things like the neuromarketing industry, which other generations have not had to face, Mm -hmm. you know, and just the onslaught of consumerism that we grow up in coupled with. My history with money and just to continue to be out and not have shame about it and to say, oh, these are the struggles I'm facing because I am a writer. I'm a creative person. I'm impulsive. That's a lot of what makes me who I am in the best ways. And it's what makes me who I am in the worst ways. And just to try to corral the things that can be out of control about my personality So And to continue to have that I'm-not-staying-here energy. And what that means for me this year is to say, okay, over the next year, I'm giving myself a freelancer MBA. And so that's a list of courses that I have on LinkedIn Learning. That's um, about 12 books. And I just said, for the next year, I'm going to pause a little bit, learning about my craft, and I'm going to learn about business. That's how I'm going to face whatever situation I'm in right now. Because I think a lot of people in the personal finance community are very good with money naturally, it seems like. Mm -hmm. There are definitely a few, you know, a lot of people talk about past mistakes and things like that. And I really want to help creative people make it financially and figure it out as I figure it out. But I think overall, it's so worth making it work because it is such a joyful thing. It makes me think about the regrets of the dying and how the number one regret that this hospice nurse, Bronnie Ware, saw over and over was, I wish I'd lived my life in the way that I wanted, not what other people expected of me. And it's such a joy and climbing back up that hierarchy of needs and reaching the top of self-actualization where I feel like this is what I'm made to do. This is where I bring value to other people, being a writer. And, you know, I I was reading Essentialism as part of my freelancer MBA. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I said, where can you contribute most? And I I said. What I can do is be a shameless goofball. And like, that's, that's where I, that's my place, right? And I think that other people relate to that. And also as I learn and address the parts of myself that make it hard to function as an artist and make that art work and make that art life work, I can help other people figure it out too, because it is figure out a bull. There's something that I have to dig deep and get out of my past that Causes me to live outside my means and spend more than I have and be almost too afraid to plan because things feel so out of control. But I can get up in the morning and say, no, check your YNAB, <laughs> you know, and have that meeting um, with your partner and say, "What? Well, OK, what are we doing with money? What's our plan? And even when it's not working to stop and say, OK, what's making it not work? So this year has worked in so many ways, I feel like I've grown my network. I've gotten a few more stories in the New York Times. Like things have worked on one level that's not as easy to graph as the financial level. But it was a year of building my business. And I really feel like next year it will pay off. And I'm, I'm betting on and investing in myself. I feel that I'm on the path to success, even though it's been a little rocky over the last year. So it's it feels 100% worth it. Nice.
0: But thank you, Paula. Is there any final takeaway that you would like to leave people with? Yeah, I
1: think if you're saving for financial independence in order to do something creative, that's amazing and that's a really great way to go about it. But don't wait until you have financial independence to start. Because you really only get better at doing the thing by doing the thing. So start to carve out time now. Start to own that identity now. Even when you have a day job. Like when I had my worked at the tech company, I would say, I'm a writer, but my day job is in tech. I owned that identity but even before it was a full-time thing. Start to learn from the masters. Start to learn your craft. And really set yourself up to go into that fully. And I think that starting with whatever you imagine that you'll do once you're retired will really help you stay on that the path if you're doing it by way of financial independence to say like yes i like my best hour of the day is the day that i get to play the piano or you know throw pots so start to follow the people you love on instagram and, and you know follow the hashtags and get into the community a little bit and start to identify as that and then it'll make it all the more easy once you are are in that world and then once you're fi and you want to really go for it remember that you are in sales You're going to be selling. You're going to be making something and selling it. So learn about sales and that you are running a business. So really come to it with the awareness that you're an entrepreneur and getting that entrepreneurial education and bringing that entrepreneurial spirit with you if you want to make money doing it.
0: Nice. Awesome. Thank you, Paulette. And where can people find you if they want to connect with you?
1: I am on Instagram as Paulette J. Perhatch. I lost Paulette Perhatch. I don't know what I did. Um, and I'm on Twitter as Paulette Perhatch. Those are the easiest ways. My blog is fofffun.com, spelled out. Mm-hmm.
0: And I'm also at PaulettePerhatch.com. And we will link to all of those in the show notes. Thank you, Paulette, for sharing your story. What are some of the key takeaways that we can learn from this conversation? Here are nine. Number one, when we frame things in a global perspective, your life may be full of first world problems. However, that doesn't diminish them. They are still emotionally valid. They are still problems that, that impact you and that affect you at a deep level.
1: I went to Burlington Coat Factory and I wanted this really cute ski jacket and I couldn't get it because I couldn't afford it. And then my friend went and got the same one. I was like, oh, God. And I wore some like someone's uncle's clothes that were all too big and ugly. And of course, then you say like, "Okay, well, there this is like my problem all the time. I'm always trying to rehear my own story or geolocate in a way my own story globally. Right. Mm -hmm. To see my own life globally. But I'm not like a global animal I'm an animal that's used to comparing, like we evolved to compare ourselves to the people around us, right? Like our reference groups. Mm-hmm. So to me, it caused me emotional pain that I was like the floppy, wearing a someone's uncle's double XL jacket. You know, I wanted to be the cute girl in the cute silver ski coat, and I wasn't. So it's like, well, get over it. No one cares. But also it's like, well, that's how it felt at the time.
0: Wearing someone's uncle's hand-me-down jacket on a ski trip rather than buying your own jacket – Sure, that's the epitome of a first world problem, but it's still emotionally valid. And so, that first key takeaway is not to discount your emotional truth or the emotional truths of others. We're not here to compare our lives to anybody else's. This is not a who had it worse pissing contest. If something is emotionally true to you, then it matters. And if something is emotionally true, to the person that you're speaking with, it matters. So that's that first key takeaway. Yes, there are people who have it worse, but that does not diminish what you are experiencing. Key takeaway number two. Sometimes we want things because we've been taught that having that thing validates our existence That was the thing. It was like, I always wanted
1: the semester at sea, the study abroad. I have this neurotic thing about life where I want to check all these boxes off. I want or needed that very specific life experience. I needed to go to prom. I needed to get a yearbook. I needed to get a this. I needed to get a car at 16. Like I wanted that very, I don't know, what is that? It tells you that you're really living or that your life is valid or something. Like I needed that.
0: I thought that was a good observation when Paulette said that checking the boxes feels like it validates your life. When you're in high school, it's going to prom and going to high school football games and getting a yearbook and a class ring and a senior photo. Those are the check boxes that validate your life, that validate that, yes, you did the high school thing. And when you're at college, it's study abroad or semester at sea. And then when you're older, it's getting the house and the nice car and the diamond ring and the big wedding and the big TV and a China set for some reason. In rich person society or an upper middle class society, those are the types of things that we are taught validate that you're a grown up. And sometimes people want that in order to validate that stage of life. So ask yourself, if you find yourself wanting something, do you want the thing itself? Or do you want the feeling of validation that that thing symbolizes? And if what you're actually going for is that sense of validation, is there a free or cheap way to get it? Is there an alternative that doesn't involve spending thousands of dollars? So that is key takeaway number two. Key takeaway number three, move forward.
1: So I just was like, okay, you really hate where you are right now. What are we going to do? And I decided that I was going to study 10 key so that I could input the numbers faster. So every day I would do a little five-minute lesson on 10 key and just do that. Because I'm like, I'm going to use this to launch myself forward in the tiniest way. Because you can't just like sit
0: when you're in a bad situation. That's what I've learned. Move forward. Well, she says it right there. She did the opposite of what many people do. Many people complain, make excuses, and don't do anything to move forward, no matter how tiny that step might be. Whereas Paulette, she took a five-minute lesson a day, and it was a way that she could take one small step forward. She didn't like where she was. She didn't like the life circumstances that she was in, and she didn't just wallow in it she figured out something that she could do however small to get her on that path out of there that's key takeaway number 3 keep moving key takeaway number 4
1: always negotiate i told my partner at the time i was like i'm going to negotiate for 5000 more and he was like i don't know you're really desperate for a job like i don't think you should negotiate but i was like no i'm reading all these books about getting a job you should negotiate I negotiated for $5,000 more. I asked for that and they were like, well, what about commission? So I ended up getting 1% commission. And that was, over the next three
0: years, $100,000 difference. It was a $100,000 difference. That single decision that she made to negotiate her compensation was worth $100,000 over the course of three years. That is significant. One of the most powerful levers that you can pull is the earning lever. And negotiating for a higher salary or negotiating to receive a 1% commission on the sales that you make in addition to your salary, those are the types of moves that propel you forward. So don't be afraid to negotiate. Don't be afraid to raise your rates. Don't be afraid to make career moves to jump to a different company if that's what it takes in order to give yourself a raise. Because at the end of the day, nobody's looking out for your earnings more than you. So that is key takeaway number four. Negotiate and keep leveling up. Key takeaway number five. Commit to the value and the practice of lifelong learning. And I ended up
1: actually starting a corporate university at that tech company and became like full on adult education nerd which has become a big part of my, well, like what I offer and also what I'm about, because I really didn't take advantage of my education. And I see my own personal education as a pathway to make more money and live my dream at the same time.
0: Paulette's story is very much reflective of the power of lifelong learning, the power of continuing to develop new skills and continually self educate. Long, long after her formal education is over, she keeps reading and learning and sharpening the saw. And that has been a big piece of her success. And so that's key takeaway number five. Commit to the practice of lifelong learning. Key takeaway number six. A job can be valuable even if it doesn't pay a lot. Even though I didn't make a lot of money, I got a ton of value out of Peace Corps. I mean, you're on the other
1: side of the planet. You look up. For the stars that you know and you realize like oh no this is the darkness on the other side underneath Mm -hmm. we are floating in space
0: who the hell decided that we have to work 40 hours a week there is often no correlation between the income that you get from a job versus the value that you receive from that job paulette didn't make much money in the peace corps but she learned a great deal and when I was a newspaper reporter, I made a starting salary of 21000 and an ending salary of 31000 But even though I didn't make very much, that's where I refined my skills as a writer. And because I developed those skills, I then had the skill set to be able to start a successful blog. And then five years after I started that blog, I launched this podcast with a co-host. And because both myself and my co-host had existing blog audiences, we had a very strong launch, which contributed to the rapid success of this podcast. So even though I didn't make much money when I worked at a newspaper, I made $31,000 at my peak, I learned how to write. And that skill has created multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars of value over my still pretty young lifetime. So the point of that is that If you need money to pay off debt or if you need money to buy a rental property or to seed a small business, if you need a cash up, then sure, do what Paulette did and take a high-paying job for the salary when Paulette took that high-paying tech job and she just needed to cash up. But if you're in a position in which you're not in a debt emergency and you have the leeway and the flexibility to do so, it can be worthwhile to take a job for the life skills that it will teach you. Rather than the paycheck, knowing that there's no correlation necessarily between income and value that you yourself as an employee or as a worker get from that job. And so that is key takeaway number six. Jobs can be valuable even if they don't pay a lot. And by the way, this same quote from Paulette, the quote that you just heard, leads to key takeaway number seven as well. And that is... Don't feel as though you need to work 40 hours a week. Your value comes from your results, not from the amount of time that your butt is sitting in a chair. And so that's key takeaway number seven. Don't be stuck on this 40-hour-a-week framework. Key takeaway number eight. Gratitude is at the center of everything.
1: It comes from a place
0: of gratitude
1: that we have the opportunity to do this because not a lot of people do. And I think if you do have that
0: opportunity, you should go for it. You can live cheaply and follow your passions. And that is not an opportunity that everybody has. So if you have the opportunity to live frugally and spend only on the things that matter most in your life and take control of your time, well, that's awesome. Take that opportunity. Not everybody can do that. And you can. So be grateful for the fact that you can go for it and then go for it. Finally, key takeaway number nine, don't wait until you reach financial independence before you start pursuing bigger dreams and passions and goals. I think if you're
1: saving for financial independence in order to do something creative, that's amazing and that's a really great way to go about it. But don't wait until you have financial independence to start. Because you really only get better at doing the thing by doing the thing. So start to carve out time now. Start to own that identity now. Even when you have a day job, like when I had my worked at a tech company, I would say, I'm a writer, but my day job is in tech.
0: You don't have to wait until you're financially independent before you start beginning your creative pursuits. You can start that now. And then when you reach financial independence, if you choose to quit your job, that can amplify what you're already doing but you're already doing it you're doing it along the path towards financial independence so whatever it is that interests you whether it's working with animals or traveling or music or art do it now and do it after you reach fi but do it now also those are nine key takeaways from this conversation with paulette perhatch if you enjoyed today's episode will you please do me a big favor Share this episode with a friend or a family member. That's the single most important thing that you can do to support this podcast. Send them a link to this episode or teach them how to download a podcast if they've never listened to podcasts before. We're on Spotify. We're also on YouTube, youtube.com slash And of course, we're on every major podcast player like Apple Podcasts or Overcast or Stitcher. Also, don't forget to hit that subscribe button in your favorite podcast playing app so that you don't miss any upcoming episodes. By the way, do you want a rundown of some of the guests that are coming up? All right. This is exciting. So we have Daniel Pink. He's the author of Drive, and he has a new book out called When. He is joining us on the show. That will be the February 1st episode. Dr. Cal Newport... He was a previous guest on this show. He's the author of Deep Work and So Good They Can't Ignore You. He has a new book about digital minimalism, where he applies the principles of minimalism to your digital life and ties that in with the financial independence philosophy. So Cal Newport and I discussed that. That's coming up on an upcoming episode. And acclaimed investor Larry Swedro joins us to talk about, well, investing all of that is coming up on the Afford Anything podcast in the month of February 2019. So make sure you hit the subscribe button so that you don't miss any of those awesome interviews. As a reminder, myself, Vicki Robin, who's the author of Your Money or Your Life, and Tanya Hester, who is the blogger behind Our Next Life, the three of us, uh, along with Cheryl Reed, the organizer, are going to be hosting the first ever Chautauqua event with an all-female speaker lineup. Everybody is welcome. So if you'd like to join us, that's going to be held in Ecuador in November 2019, November 2 through 9, 2019. And you can get details at abovethecloudsretreats.com. Thank you again so much for tuning in. My name is Paula Pant. You can find me on Instagram at Paula Pant, P-A-U-L-A, P-A-N-T. Have an amazing week, and I'll catch you next week.